You think you have life figured out? I never feel like I got life figured out. Men have to figure out what they have to do. If you really have an obsession to figure it out, you will figure it out. Figure out who you are, don't apologize for who you are, and then become even greater than you naturally are at what you are. Yo, what's going on everybody? Welcome to episode number 19 of the FitFo Podcast, where I have conversations with amazing moms, dads, and thought leaders of all different industries. It helps to help me figure out how to be the more well-rounded father that I want to be for my two young girls. My guest on this episode rose through the ranks of the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department after 27 years and finished his career as captain. Then, after retiring, decided to just go get his doctorate in strategic leadership. Oh, he authored his first book called Bold Leadership and also serves as an adjunct professor. He did all those things while raising great kids. Dr. Merlin Switzer. He's now the go-to guy for most law enforcement agencies here in Northern California. When morale's an issue or there's a major change in policy or leadership, he's who they tap into. Along with that, he brings 17 years of executive leadership experience and has coached more than 200 business leaders to help them improve their leadership strategies, operations, and grow both the top and bottom line of their organizations. So during this conversation, we discuss tactics that any parent can use at home to help raise and lead their families, as well as those strategies he uses while coaching to help individuals see success as a leader. So here we go. I hope you guys enjoy this episode with Dr. Merlin Switzer. All right. Well, Mr. Dr. Switzer, thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining on the FitFo podcast today. You know, where it's my job to try to interview uh, successful individuals like yourself to really understand, you know, life lessons uh, that I can apply not only in the business world, which I think we'll talk a lot about from a leadership perspective, obviously your impressive career history, uh, but also as a father, as I try to intertwine the two, I think they're so important. And so for me, uh, my selfish joy out of this is getting to become a little bit of a better dad uh, day in and day out by talking to people like you. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. My pleasure. So I thought we could get started just by talking a little bit about your background, your career path, like how you got to where you were, because I know you're in stage two of that, uh, but would love to share with the audience just a little bio on yourself, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. You bet. You know, uh, after high school, I I really only went to college for two reasons. One is uh, I had a passion for wrestling. And the school I wanted to go to, um, the wrestling coach was interested in me being on the team. And my dad had uh, been after me for years uh, to go to college. And in fact, um, half of everything I made went into a uh, savings account. uh, So I would have some college money uh, when uh, when the time came. So I went away to college. Uh, It was um, a good experience because uh, I really had to focus. I didn't have time. I had to, you know, pay the freight, so to speak. Uh, and so I didn't have time to do a lot of other things, which was probably good. Uh, any rate, after college, I was I actually, as a senior in college, I was really praying and, and uh, doing some counseling in terms of, you know, where do I go from here? And I really felt a calling to leadership and law enforcement. I was a senior in college. I thought, well, I, I should probably be better educated. So I started a master's in criminal justice. Uh, Where was that? In Sacramento. Okay, both Sac State or yeah, Sac State. Uh, and after 
Uh, I carried 15 units my first semester. I was working two or three part-time jobs. Uh, and shortly after the first of the year, um, you know, after the spring semester, I was offered a position with the Sacramento Sheriff's Department, which was my first choice. So I got to a stable place, went back to school, completed that master's. Uh, and then actually, um, after a couple of years, I was working in the jail. I, you know, it wasn't very um, intellectually stimulating. And so I decided I was going to go back to school. I thought about a doctorate at that time, but opted instead for a master's in public administration. Uh, I ended up spending 28 years with the Sacramento Sheriff's Department, um, wow. promoting up through the ranks uh, to captain. It's a great experience, good organization, had a lot of opportunities to lead in many different kinds of settings, developing and implementing programs, leading organizational change, turning around dysfunctional work areas, um, and so forth. It, it was really a lot of fun. Uh, but I had always had a passion for leadership. It, it actually started in high school. After my sophomore year, I'd been leading in my church youth group, and I was also leading in um, the high school campus. And two different groups sent me to leadership camps. And so I knew that in some way I would be involved in leadership, even at that point. But I didn't know what that would look like. Uh, yeah. And so then as I uh, you know, went through the career, I, I really learned a lot, had a lot of uh, opportunity and a lot of you know, good things happened. And so um, fast forward in 20, uh, well, 2004, I was speaking across the country. I think I spoke at eight national, international conferences on how to lead organizational change, how to develop high performing teams. And I knew I was, was at a crossroads. So as my wife and I talked about it, we prayed about it, we really felt that God was calling me to close that chapter and jump into leadership consulting work full time. So uh, mm. I actually retired sooner than I anticipated, jumped into the leadership work. And then uh, several years later, actually two years later, my wife said, you know, I, I just really feel that you should get a doctorate. Uh, and I said, you know, I'm going to have to think and pray about that. I'm not sure the juice is worth the squeeze with uh, right. you know, two master's degrees. But I felt convicted in my heart that that was the right thing to do. And literally three months later, I was in Virginia Beach at Regent University starting a doctor of strategic leadership. Uh, and so it was full time for three years. Uh, and it was really a good experience. My emphasis area was leadership coaching. I really hadn't done any coaching type work with leaders at that point. And so that opened up a whole other avenue for me um, in terms of the leadership work. And it, I got to tell you, Brian, it really has exceeded my expectations. Oh, well, I'm happy to hear that. And I definitely want to talk a lot about that. You know, obviously, as a leader myself in, in my organization, there's so much I can learn from somebody like you. Uh, but also, you know, I think the fun intersection is not just leading at the workplace, but also leading at home. Right. And I think uh, it's, you know, kind of common, unfortunately, uh, to lose track of one of the two sides. Right. Hard to give the full effort at both as I've fallen victim to at times, for sure. Um, so, I'm curious, during that stage, you know, while you're at Sacramento County, like maybe as the, I don't know what rank you were at when you became a parent, but how, like, when did that come into play and how did you navigate that at first in your career? Yeah, um, well, I was an older parent. We had, my wife had two children. Uh, I'd never had children, so we're a blended family. 
Uh, and so I really wanted to do well, so to speak, with um, these two children. And, and the Lord blessed us with uh, two boys after that. So we ended up with four children. Uh, wow. And I really wanted to, um, to be engaged in my kids' lives. You know, sometimes we try to we try to correct things that may have happened in our own lives uh, mm. and make changes. You know, what would I have liked things to be like when I was growing up? And so I really wanted to spend time with my boys. Um, athletics, for example, for all our kids was really important. And, um, you know, particularly when the younger two came along, um, I helped coach their their teams. My wife um, was involved in coaching. We tried to be at their games. We tried to, you know, I, I had been studying by this time after they came along. I was in my 40s. Um, hmm. And even during my doctoral work, they were still pretty young. And I wanted um, I wanted them not to be ethnocentric, um, you know, so to speak. I wanted them to understand and appreciate other cultures. And so uh, we took them to Europe a couple of times to expose them to different situations, different cultures, different history, uh, things of that nature. And so um, it really was uh, an interesting experience, um, really investing in them. And, um, it, you know, so often I, you know, I, I love giving them a hug and kissing them on the cheek or something, things that, that I, I wanted as a kid growing up. Yeah. So how you had them later in life, were you still at uh, the sheriff's department when you had them or had you exited that career? No, I, um, they were very young, but we, we already had those two. Um, and by when I retired at 50, uh, they were like five and three. So they were still pretty young. Wow. And one, one of the really neat things about that though, was uh, for 10 years, I worked out of a home office. Uh, and so I would have breakfast with them every morning. I was there when they got home most days. Uh, and so it really allowed me to spend more time with them than I had been able to spend with the uh, older two. That's so invaluable. I think now, you know, you're seeing a lot of studies showing to be able to have both parents in the home uh, while, you know, they're growing up, especially those really, you know, transformational years at the beginning as their brains are getting developed. Right. So um, that's cool. And especially back then, you know, remote work wasn't as common, at least, you know, until COVID, I don't think, you know, I had worked remote maybe a week in my entire career until then. So for you to be able to do that, uh, that's special. Yeah, it really has been and continues to be, uh, be good. So how did you think about that as you were transitioning careers, you're a father, a young father, I should say, but uh, a father at that time. And now you're thinking about leadership, right? You're starting to really dive into this coaching, which um, obviously I'm sure, you know, you're taking on not just your problems of your business, but now you're incorporating other organizations problems to try to help them get better at, you know, producing and, and high achieving teams. So did you have any correlations with, you know, leading the home front? And uh, this practice, was there any, you know, crossovers or, or lessons that you got because you're at the breakfast table with your kids and you're like, oh, I need to implement this at my training program today? Yeah. Um, well, if we were to find strategic leadership, uh, strategic is to carefully design or plan in a way with something 
for some particular purpose. And leadership would be around, you know, an influence relationship between you as a leader and others. And so if we look at strategic leadership, particularly in the light of the home, you know, it's an influence relationship carefully designed to serve some particular purpose. And so um, in the home front, you know, that that purpose is to develop strong relationships, to grow healthy kids, um, to give them a foundation that they can then weather uh, many different circumstances. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about our interview today, Brian, and, and I was thinking about um, all of our kids, and I really wanted to instill a hard work ethic. And so I, I tried to model that. Um, you know, they all had chores to do. They worked with us when we were building a house or doing other things. Um, and, you know, when they wanted something, it would have been easy to say, okay, here's 50 bucks, go buy it. Instead, uh, I, I would make comments like, hey, that's a great idea. Save your money. Uh, here's some ideas on how you can make money or whatever the case is. And in fact, the kids used to tease me, when, when you die, we're going to put on your gravestone, save your money, because uh, <laughs> they heard those things. Um, but now, fast forward, our two youngest boys are in the early 20s. They're both aviation mechanics. They're both um, being looked at and considered for lead positions even though they're among the youngest in their respective companies. Uh, and my youngest said to me just recently, he said, you know, dad, one of the reasons that they're looking at me for a lead position is because of my work ethic. Uh, I work hard. I look for work. And most of the people around me, they're sitting around, they're you know, only doing what they're told. And so as I heard that, I reflected back on those years where we're trying to teach our kids work ethic. And he's benefiting today because of those lessons that he learned at home. Man, I mean, is there a bigger compliment? I'm sure there is like, but to have that be something that has is truly been instilled in them and for them to be able to reap those benefits years later of instilling that work ethic, I mean, that's what it's all about. You can only hope that those lessons learned are going to, you know, help them in later years. But uh, kudos to you, whatever you did, it obviously worked. Anything that you can uh, share, any bits of information of, of how you approach that and anything that you think uh, maybe I should apply at home or anybody that's listening? Well, it, it, as I mentioned, we tried to create opportunities. You know, it, all the kids always want things and, and, and we gave our kids a lot. But in, in the same token, we often said, hey, you know, that's something extra. That'd be nice to have, but it's your responsibility to earn money. And I might, you know, we might say, okay, here's a way for you to make five bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks, whatever it is. Oh, and, you know, you can talk to some of the neighbors. You can do other things um, that will help you generate that money. And as you earn money, put it aside. You have extra money, save it. Because there will come a time mm. when you want something and then that money uh, will be there. That's so invaluable. Just the power of saving money. You know, it's just not talked about enough. 
uh, still, right? And, you know, obviously uh, what we're facing today and, uh, you know, I'm, I won't go into too much uh, economics front, but uh, yeah, I think with the stimulus checks and how people are relying on, you know, getting, you know, support and, and aid, it's, you know, unfortunate, but it's just, we're not teaching it at a young enough age. So kudos to you for doing that. Uh, there was a question that came to mind while you were speaking on the the work ethic aspect, um, and it was really around you know how do you empower them to uh, to earn to be able to uh, take on those different you know positions whether it's at a young age like did you have them start to work uh, you know whether it was odd jobs or actually like did they have you know jobs from an, uh, an early point in their careers and um, do you think that that helped translate into it or was it more just uh, the the work that you showed them by leading uh, the house in an example and uh, that's really what instilled it just curious if you think one or the other well, actually, I think it's a combination of both. For example, mm-hmm. our youngest um, played tennis, and he was regularly break strings on a tennis racket. And at one point, uh, we said, hey, look, why don't you buy a tennis stringing machine, and you can string your own rackets and not have to pay for them, and you can make money by stringing rackets for other people. Uh, and so we looked in uh, Craigslist, Lo and behold, uh, just a matter of a couple miles away was a guy that was selling a tennis stringing machine. And so we went over and looked at it. Um, he uh, gave our son a, a good price. It wasn't cheap, but he uh, bought this machine and he strung dozens and dozens of rackets. In fact, he worked with a, a head rep uh, and would sometimes string 20 or 30 rackets at a time. Uh, and, and so he made money or, you know, in, in that particular case, uh, the, uh, the person didn't pay him in money, but he had arrangements. So he got rackets, he got, um, um, a, uh, snowboard. I remember at, uh, almost nothing. Um, and, and so it, it really worked out well. He was probably at the time a freshman in high school, um, and then a couple of years later, he was actually, I think, only 15, and he got hired at a pro shop. And so he was stringing rackets in the pro shop. He was selling things. He's working independent. The owner was a single-person owner. And, and so Caleb ran the shop when he was there by himself at 15, had keys to the store and would open it up. Uh, it was inside a club, a uh, sports club. Um, but he uh, – you know, worked regularly there. And as did our other son, worked there at that uh, that sporting, that club that we belong to, uh, but worked other places too. Yeah, it sounds like you taught him how to be resourceful um, and figure out ways to be able to provide for himself, right? Versus just giving him the easy way out. And I think the more that you're able to do that as a parent, you know, the better you're going to equip your children to be able to handle life challenges that are going to come their way. And, you know, it's a micro adversity. It wasn't, you know, the end of the world. But if you teach them how to be able to be uh, responsive to what life throws at you with solving uh, the problem and and coming with a solution, it's going to work out. Mm -hmm. As you're, you know, obviously giving us those life lessons to, uh, instilling our children, what do you think is the problem with uh, parenting today? Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I say this loosely, but I think we can all say that there's, you know, 
areas that we can improve, especially in the United States from, you know, the next generations. And, you know, there's nobody to blame, but the generation that's raising them, you know, I think people always want to talk about, oh, this generation is entitled and, you know, they want things handed to them, but it's like, you got to look at the person that's raising those individuals. So what do you see as maybe some common things that you would hope to help other parents or, or issues that you see in the place today? Well, there's a couple of things I think that come into that. You know, the first thing on the top of my mind is values. What are important values? How do you navigate the world in which we live um, without having values? And so what are values that can help you navigate that and, and give you stability, even though the circumstances change around you? And in fact, Brian, that really applies to the workplace as well. I had seven values. I talked to every single employee about one-on-one. And I did that multiple times with 85 to 100 people. Uh, And one of those values I talked about at work was given 100%. Those are conversations I had with our children as well, giving 100%, you know, character, honesty, um, things of that nature. Those are values that are really important whether you're at work or whether you're at home and taking time to talk about those, to recognize those, letting your kids know, wow, I just saw how you handled that situation. That was really good. Uh, And so reinforcing those values. I did the same thing at work. One of my mantras was catching people doing right. Uh, And so I tried to, every day I tried to catch somebody doing right. And it happened every day. No, of course not, but it happened regularly. And it helped to create a culture, whether at work or at home, that was value-centered. And, you know, at home, we tried to to do do things that we thought were right. We invested heavily in our kids in terms of spending time with them and and giving them opportunities and taking them to church and talking about different situations. Um, Those things are all important. I mean, when you look at the statistics around... Um, young men that are in jail, for example, the overwhelming majority have little or no relationship with their dad. Uh, and so right. we as dads, it's important we spend time with the kids. It's important the kids know that we love them uh, and that we were there to support and encourage them. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, those statistics that you read, it's just, it's alarming, right? From crime and you know individuals in jail or even you know, just um, economic, you know, disparities between, you know, different, you know, classes uh, because of, you know, the one parent home and, you know, usually it's the father that's not there, right? Not present. So you mentioned the values and I really want to talk about that because I think that's super important both in the workplace and at home. And uh, a fun uh, thought exercise that I've been going through with some other dads that I'm in, you know, kind of a, a men's group with is establishing those like family values and those core fundamentals that we want our, our families to live by. But the exercise is not doing it with the men, but with your family and being able to sit around the table with your your children, your wife, and deciding who are we and defining those character traits and those values that we really want to embody and believe in. Uh, but my daughters are four and one and a half, you know, so they don't really get it. Uh, so I'm just curious, how did you approach it? Was it just the values that you believed in that you embedded into them? Did they have part of those conversations when you guys were deciding that at home? Did you ever have them listed on the refrigerator or in the house that people can see um, or they can see more importantly, you know, day in and day out? Um, part of it, 
I, I'll go back and, and kind of embedded, so to speak. In other words, these are values that we hold highly and we want to embrace. And so they grew up with, with those in a sense. But we had conversations around those things as well. I can remember uh, quite candidly or specifically, we were sitting around the table and it was talking to, you know, we're having a family conversation around, um, you know, values and what things were like there at house. And I can remember um, one of my boys saying, you know, dad, um, it'd be really nice if, you know, you, um, you're here every morning. Cause at the time, sometimes I'd be traveling. Um, mm. and then, uh, you'd be, uh, here when we got home from work and then we could play for a while after dinner and, uh, so forth. And, and out of that conversation came, uh, a practice of date nights. And so, uh, at that time, my boys were probably, uh, I want to say, oh, eight and 10, somewhere in that that range, uh, maybe a little bit younger. Uh, but what we started and did for quite a while was uh, once a month on a Monday night, uh, I would date one of my boys. And they got it, it would, it normally would be three or four hours. Uh, we'd go out. And they got to pick the activity as a general rule. Um, most often we'd get a meal. And so they got to say, well, I'd like this kind of food. Or I want to go there. Um, and, and so, for example, uh, one of my boys, Ben, uh, several times wanted to go rock wall climbing. And so we both would climb the rock walls at a, at a gym. My other son said, you know, Dad, I'd really like it if you would go to the skate park and just watch me on the uh, skateboard. Uh, and so those were a couple of activities that I did multiple times with each boy. Uh, and then we might go somewhere and, you know, to eat, um, you know, after that, um, before we go home. And, and so I really, I hope they got as much value out of spending the time with me as I did spending the time with them. I guarantee you they did. And so basically, was it every other Monday? Did you just rotate whose turn it was? No, it was once a month. Uh, okay. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. I might have to, I'm going to steal that because uh, especially now as they get older, you know, just having that one-on-one -on -one time, you know, so valuable and you don't get it as often, right? So what about um, as we transition to think a little bit more about your now career, uh, executive leadership, being able to help develop high performance teams? You know, obviously, I, I've got some time with you. So I'm curious, like building company culture. I recently left my you know corporate job at the beginning of the year to go co-found a startup. And so, you know, we're thinking about who are we from a company culture perspective day in and day out? I'm curious how you approach it for maybe both small organizations like myself or maybe parents that are listening that are also leaders uh, thinking about how they're building their culture in the workplace. Yeah. You know, I, I've actually worked with a, a number of organizations around culture. Uh, and, the, and it, you know, every organization has a culture. In some organizations, it's intentional and we know what it is. In other organizations, it just develops. Uh, and so uh, good, bad, or indifferent, every organization has a culture. And if we were to define culture in a very elementary way, it would be the way things are around here. 
And so one of the things that I'll often do is an organizational health survey that will go out to all the employees. And one of the questions typically would be, in a sentence, describe the culture of your organization. Another question that I've I've used on multiple case, uh, multiple occasions would, if a stranger were to walk through your organization unseen, what would they conclude was the culture of that organization? Uh, and when, when you take and look at a variety of responses, you know, a picture begins to emerge as to what the mm. culture of that organization looks like. Um, and typically, and when I would do something like that, I would ask them also, what are the, the two I, or th- maybe three ideas that would most improve the culture if they were implemented? And so then people offer ideas in terms of what they would see. And, and most often you begin to see trends that, uh, you know, that, that come in those uh, responses. Uh, and so uh, getting it, defining what the culture is, uh, is really important. Um, in a startup, taking time to talk about what the culture is. How do we want things to be around here? What are values that are important? You know, a lot of organizations have values, but they've never really actionized those values. Uh, a, a value is accepted behavior in an organization. How do we behave? Uh, and so understanding what those values are. You know, values are actually one of three what I call essential business components. The other two is mission and vision. Mission is why we exist. Vision is kind of unique perspective of where we want to be in the future. And the value values, again, are what are appropriate behaviors that not only support our mission, why we exist, but help, a, help us grow and move toward that vision that we've identified. Uh, and so I really recommend not only identifying vision and, and values. In fact, in, in one organization, I worked with the senior leadership team and they identified, oh, maybe 15 values that they thought were, were all good, solid values. Then we surveyed their staff and asked the staff to rate those and prioritize the top four or five values, for example. Uh, and then that information went back to the senior leadership team who then looked at it and then actually, ad- you know, adopted values. And then we worked at developing what I call contextual statements. What does that value mean to us? Because if I say, uh, let's just say I, a, a value is compassion. Well, what, what does compassion mean? Uh, and so the contextual statement says we have this value and here's what it means to us. And so that puts meat on the bones, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it helps um, even very large corporations. Uh, there's a, a, a really interesting article that I read. And I, I believe the author was Roseanne Cantor. Uh, hmm. And. She talked about values in a multinational companies. She said values serve as internal guidance system. And so regardless of the culture, they interpret the value 
as appropriate in that culture. And so she said that helps maintain multinational companies uh, maintain, you know, pretty similar values, even though they may be operating in different cultures. And so you, uh, from that very large multinational company to a startup, those values are important. And I, I sometimes use what I call a filter diagram and I flow chart it. And it's, let's just say we had mission, vision, and values. When we look at an idea, to what extent is that idea consistent with our mission, vision, and values? If it's consistent, then let's consider it further. If it's not consistent and we embrace it, it will actually move us from away from what we have identified our core business elements. Um, now, there are times when it may be appropriate, and so maybe we need to change those core business elements, but we'll avoid a lot of heartache, I think, and problems if we remain true to those things, whatever they are, that we've identified as core business elements. In other words, what's our vision? What's our mission? What are our values? So as we look at something, to what extent or how does that fit with these core elements? I really like that. And and I think the the core values and how you add that conceptual statement as well, because compassion, to use that example, analogy, it can mean something so different from employee to employee, right? So defining that in terms of our workplace, our culture as an organization uh, is so critical. So I'm, I'm definitely going to borrow that as we continue to think about it because we're at the early stages. And so, you know, we've obviously gone through that mission statement. What is our vision? What are some of the core values that we have? But being able to, you know, it's it's easy to say what those are, but how do you live them? And how do you have actionable insights to make sure that that's truly ingrained into your DNA day in and day out when you've, you know, a, a, a new customer comes in, uh, they've got a new demand and you want to say yes to everything at this stage, but is that uh, taken away from those core values to go into, you know, too much of a different direction you know, or should you stay in the lane that you've already predefined um, and really just focus on your niche and, and you know, keep those blinders on is it's something so tough at that stage. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've worked with a lot of leadership teams to develop leadership team visions. In other mm. words, who are we as a leadership team? What kind of leadership does our organization need from us? And whatever that is, then what are some values that we as a leadership team should be embracing in order to lead our company uh, appropriately? And then for each of those values, what are some examples of behaviors that I might exhibit consistent with that value that helps to support that? So the goal is to connect that leadership team vision with behavior. Uh, how do I behave as a leader? And so the piece in between the vision and the behavior are the values. And so taking identifying the values along with those contextual statements. And then what does that look like lived out? And, and so I, I thought of that because something you said triggered the fact that um, it's good to have vision. It's good to have values. But then what does that look like lived out? where anybody can say, okay, here's a behavior. How does that fit with what we've identified as appropriate and acceptable? Yeah. 
Yeah, I feel like we could talk uh, all night about that. But you, you've also, in my, you know, just research and going through some of the other conversations I've heard you have, um, you do a good job of not just helping individual organizations define, you know, what is their, who are they as a leadership team, but also, you know, on an individual basis of who am I as a leader. Right. And I'd be curious just to get some insights there of like, how do you find, define, you know, what a true leader is and what are some of those key traits that you've identified after talking to, you know, hundreds of companies at this stage of your career um, of the best leaders that you've been able to interview, talk to, or coach? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a very broad uh, question, Brian. So let's, uh, let's pick that apart a little bit. You know, earlier I said that leadership is an influence relationship. And so when you are just because you're the boss doesn't make you a leader. You should be a leader, but uh, you may be more of a manager, the taskmaster versus the leader. And don't get me wrong. There's a place for management and it's necessary, but that's different than leadership. Uh, and so leadership being that influence relationship, then how do I influence people in a certain way? Um, and so, you know, I, I'll just give you an example that I felt really worked well for me. One of my first big leadership challenges is I was a new uh, middle manager, lieutenant, and uh, I worked in the Sacramento County Main Jail. I had a team of 100 people. The boss told me when he transferred me to there, he said, it's out of control. I have to have changes. And so I met with almost everybody one-on-one. And I said, hey, the boss says things are out of control. I don't know if they are or they aren't. What's your perspective? And what would you do about it? And when I got finished with that process, uh, I had five supervisors. And then we had about 95 people that uh, then worked with us. And what I found was the problems largely centered on leadership. We had young supervisors that weren't, you know, that didn't know how to lead necessarily. Um, Mm. They weren't visible in places where we were vulnerable to problems. Um, People were going to the person that they thought they would get the best answer from, you know, sergeant shopping is what we uh, used to call it. Um, And, and, And there were just some other factors that came into play. And so I realized we were not going to make a difference on this shift with this, these 95 other people, unless we came together and we talked about how do we behave as a leadership team? What do the other 95 people need from us so that they can do their jobs effectively and we can manage well, so to speak, the responsibility that was before us? because we had more than 1,200 inmates, many of whom were very seasoned criminals, uh, and our staff was young, many of them, and inexperienced. And so it was a recipe for disaster. Uh, And so we, you know, began being where we needed to be. We talked among ourselves on a regular basis. Um, You know, we addressed um, behaviors that were not appropriate, and we consistently... Uh, worked with those individuals to try to turn that behavior around. Uh, and it was really uh, over the period of a year that, um, you know, we we kind of focused on the issues 
while we made a lot of, uh, I think, significant progress, it was a great learning experience for me as a manager. And so for the rest of my career, uh, I invested time in meeting with people one-on-one. And part of it came from or started with, tell me who you are. What's your background? What excites you when you're not at work? Uh, And I listened intently for two things in particular, shared experiences, common aspirations, because those are linkage points in building a relationship. And with that relationship and those linkage points, it becomes easier to influence people because of that stronger relationship. And so one of my... Um, one of the, one of the officers, his first name was John. When I had, we had this conversation, I found out that John was ranked nationally in go-kart racing. Um, and so I'd see John in the hallway and I said, Hey, how's the go-kart racing? And I'd tease him. Um, guy was a station commander at the time. I said, now you're not practicing with my squad car, are you? Uh, you know, it's, you know, and so it was just friendly banter, but he knew that I was, uh, interested in him beyond right his role as a uniformed officer. Uh, And so I had a lot of positive outcomes that came from spending that time in that same conversation after, you know, they shared a little bit about themselves. I shared seven values. I said, I don't want you to to guess what's important to me. I want to talk about it. This is proverbial. If I'm the new manager, the honeymoon period where people are trying to figure out who you are and what's important. I don't want you to guess. Right. It's too important. Here are seven values that I want to talk with you and see how you feel about those values. And then the third part of that conversation uh, was, uh, if you were in my shoes, what are those things that you've said to yourself, doggone, if I was running this place, I would change this. What are those things you would change and how would you change them? And I found so often that there were irritants in the workplace that while they didn't have the ability to change, I did, uh, many of them. And so I would not only would I change some of those things, but I would give them the credit. Hey, I was having a conversation with so-and-so. He brought this to my attention. And I said, he's got a really good idea. And I think this is going to work. Let's do it. Um, And and so then we implement things. I'll I'll give you a, a specific example. Uh, I was I was commander of a correctional facility and um, I had a collections team uh, and one of the fellows came to me and he said, you know, if we uh, if we had a way to collect money outside of our business hours, it would really make a difference. I said, what do you think? He said, I actually have a friend that works at the post office. They have a whole pile of these old post office boxes that you used to see on a corner. Uh, I think I could get a couple of them. I said, I'll tell you what, if he'll give you a couple of them, I'll have them fortified, painted, and planted in front of our building. The next week, he came with two of them in the back of his truck. I sent him down to another correctional facility, had them painted, fortified. They came back a few weeks later. I had uh, maintenance install it in front. Guess what happened to, um, you know, to uh, our uh, revenue? It went up. And he came again with two or three other ideas, and we implemented them. And it made a significant difference uh, in our anticipated uh, collections. And so I I just share the point of that is it wasn't my idea. It was his idea. And he actually, in one case, he drew some plans up. 
and I and and I have it, had it fabricated. Um, uh, and so it's talking to your people, find, getting their ideas. What are things that are interfering with them being able to do the good job that they want to do? And so alleviating those things and listening to creative ideas and implementing uh, those ideas uh, where you can. Ah, man, so interesting how you phrased it. You know, I like that three-step approach. When you have that one-on-one with them is you start with them, right? Who are they? But you said something that I always think of like Dale Carnegie is, you know, when they're speaking, don't, a lot of people try to just respond and find that commonality right then and there in that conversation. But you were, you know, just understanding who they were first, just to get to know them, understand what motivates them, who they are as a person outside of the workplace, you know, not just trying to find that common ground to tell them who you were, but to really get to know who they are. And then as you shared your core values, after you let them talk through it, there was no surprises. They knew what they were getting from you. You were transparent from the jump. And I think that as a new manager, I've definitely been there where, you know, you don't want to almost show all of your colors of like who you are and how you manage. And, you know, you want to like, you know, find, do that balance, that dance um, to to find the right, you know, way to approach each individual. Uh, But then you finish it with them. And you finish like, what good ideas do you have if you could run this place? Um, so yeah, I'm going to have to borrow that one as well. And and then implement it. you got to act on it, right? It's the difference of just letting somebody tell you what they think, but it falls on deaf ears if they don't see anything. But you you show action. You actually did something about it. And, and that's something I think leaders should really take away from this conversation. It makes a huge difference um, when people know that you're listening by virtue of what you do with what they tell you. Um, and, and there's something empowering in that. It empowers people to, to share ideas and it gives them hope, particularly if we as leaders will do something with that. Wow. He was listening. He, he actually did something with that rather than what we proverbially call the black hole. Oh, I had an idea. The proverb, you know, the, the old suggestion box. Yeah. I put six suggestions in, never heard a word. It went into the black hole and. What's the point? Right. Yeah, that's so true. So I want to be respectful of your time. I realize, you know, we're already at that point that we had allotted. Do you still have a few moments? Yeah, I got a few moments more. Sure. Okay, great. So um, because I think what you just talked about is, you know, those ideas and those actions um, and the listening goes hand in hand with the parenting aspects too that we talked about earlier, showing that your kids, you're listening to their ideas and what they want to do for fun or, you know, within the household. And um, it's so critical, but uh, I guess just some quick hitter thoughts that I have from somebody at, you know, your success level, what are some of the best parenting tips or advice that you've ever received? And then the second follow on to that is, you know, any advice that you've shared with your, you know, kids or family members as they're embarking on that journey of parenthood, you know, as I am at the the early stages of fatherhood. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is don't expect perfection. You're going to make mistakes. Your parents made mistakes. Um, you know, and so, okay, if you make a mistake, admit you made a mistake. So how do we can, you know, how do we get the wheels back on the road, so to speak? Um, and so, you know, perfection is not going to happen. Um, and so we got to look at the big picture. Uh, and so the big picture is okay. In the overall scheme of things, 
you know, what are those things are we doing um, well uh, or that we could do better that we need to invest more time in in order to build a stronger family relationship? Because as we get older, what we're left with is the memories. You know, what happened? What did we do? Um, and And so, you know, we can only hope that we leave our kids with some memories, not only memories in terms of experience, but memories in terms of what's important. Um, you know, what lessons did I learn? And sometimes we don't even remember the lessons until something happens and all of a sudden, oh, yeah, uh, here's what I need to do or that kind of thing. And so uh, the other part that comes uh, comes to mind along with that is um, we need some kind of a, accountability. You mentioned being in a uh, like a, a group with other fathers. It's so powerful to know that, wow, I'm not the only one. I'm not the yeah. only one struggling with this. Because when we get with other dads, even young or old dads, regardless, and we share what's going on or what has gone on, we find that we're not alone. And that mm-hmm. gives us, there's a sense of hope that comes from knowing that we're not alone. And as we share those, we learn from others. Um, wow, I didn't realize that. What a great idea. We could do that. Um, and, and that really applies to business, too. I was uh, a convene chair, um, which it, convene is a company that brings together uh, Christian leaders. And there are some that are secular oriented, too. Um, I had 16 business owners and uh, in two groups, and I would meet with them on a monthly basis, two teams, and then I coached each of them individually in between those meetings. But in those combined wow. meetings, one of the things that we often did was talk about, okay, who's got a challenge or an issue that they're wrestling with? And so somebody would share, hey, this is the challenge that I'm having. And then others would offer wise counsel in terms of what they might consider doing. Uh, I'll never forget the very first meeting I had in this particular team. I had 10 business owners. One of the persons said, I I just, uh, I got cash flow issues. And so the team asked them questions and, and different ones said, Hey, have you considered this? Have you thought about this? You might try that. And he got ideas that he had never even thought of. Later that week, one of the people around the table called me and they said, Merle, I just ran into cash, a cash flow issue. And being in that meeting last week gave me ideas on how to immediately deal with it. I wouldn't have had had I not been at the table. That's so great to hear. Yeah. And so, you know, when we meet with others in similar situations, be at work or home, uh, we find out that we're not only having common kinds of challenges, but more importantly, we get hope as we listen to others who have ideas that we may not even thought about that then we can grab onto and use in our situation as appropriate. Uh, well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that's a big part of why I'm doing this, right? Is just having fathers talk about uh, things that they're struggling with as well. And, you know, there's ups and downs as we go on this journey together. And, you know, you've encountered them through the years of experience that you have. And, you know, I'm going through it day in and day 
out in the trenches today. So I think we, you know, men in particular, it seems like in my experience that we're just not the best communicators, especially not about our problems or the areas that we could probably do a little bit better because um, we don't want to seem vulnerable. We don't want to let down that perfection mask of, you know, we're able to handle everything at home and at the workplace. And so, yeah, I really trying to spark that, uh, that father energy where we can share with each other. So I'm glad that you said that. Yeah, it's uh, it's so important. I can remember, I don't remember what it was at the moment, but there was a something I was feeling challenged with. And so I emailed like seven or eight guys. And I said, hey guys, I'm wrestling with this. I don't know if you are, but I'd like to invite you to meet, uh, I think it was every other week for two months. Here are the dates, uh, one hour, this location. I think all but one opted in, uh, and uh, and so we met in, you know, for those uh, for that period of time, and it was very helpful for me personally, but for the others as well, because as it turned out, they were all struggling with some of the similar kinds of issues. Yeah, that's so good. And you know, that happens so often. If we just were to reach out and create those common touch points to talk about, you know, what's going on in your world today? What are your issues? What are you encountering? I guarantee you there are similarities between, you know, so many of us out there. So yeah, I might have to uh, make those touch points a little bit more frequent in my circle. And that's how you make a difference, you know, in your community, right? And the people that you love, that you care about in your friend circle. Um, so yeah, that's what we need to do uh, more and more in the society today. Well, Dr. Merle Switzer, this has been incredible. I feel like I've learned a ton. I've got some actionable items that I can take back to the workplace, as well as the date nights and a couple other tips that you shared uh, to take back to home as well. So thank you so much. So grateful for you dedicating your time to come on the podcast today. You know, if there's anything I can do to add value to you, if, if anybody uh, heard your story today and wanted to learn more about how to get uh, even more coaching or one-on-one -on -one time with you, you know, where should they go? What can I share? Any books that you uh, want me to plug? Anything I can do for you? I'd love to. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, of course. You know, SwitzerlandLeadership.com is our website. Um, they certainly can reach out to me through that. Uh, a book I wrote that uh, it was called Bold Leadership, Biblical Principles for Marketplace Impact. It's available on Amazon. The whole notion of the book was to encourage men and women of faith to be more intentional about how they live their faith in the marketplace. Uh, and, and so it's filled with real stories of men and women living their faith in the marketplace. And so it's a powerful tool to look at various aspects of leadership through that lens. Uh, well, I will definitely check that out. I'll link it in the show notes as well to make sure people can uh, also go purchase that and, and learn more from you. So again, thank you so much. And I uh, just really appreciate you. My pleasure, Brian. Good luck on your journey. And that's a wrap for episode number 19. I can't wait to put some of Dr. Merle's strategies into action, both in the office and more importantly, in, at home. I definitely have talked about those date nights with the kiddos, but uh, action speaks louder than words, and it's time for me to put those into play. Uh, so if you want to follow along more, you can find him on LinkedIn, uh, Dr. Merle Switzer, uh, or check out his website, switzeronleadership.com. So as always, if you guys like this show, it would fire me up for you to share this episode with your favorite father, parent, or leader, 
please hit that subscribe button, give a five-star rating, or leave a review to tell me what you thought. So thanks again for tuning in. Now go be great and go fit, folks. Some shit out.